All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Psalm chapter 19 this morning. Psalm chapter 19. If you don't have one with you, that's fine. We've got a black hardback probably underneath the seat around you. I invite you to grab one of those and open up with us. Psalm chapter 19. <coughs> Last week, we were very blessed to have one of our own lead us through Psalm 42 and 43. And so uh, she's not here with us, but on the podcast, I'll go ahead and say it. Thank you, Jessica. Um, for, for doing that. I was blessed listening to it, as I think all of you were who were here. Uh, she walked us through Psalm 42 and 43. And, and while I was listening, it reminded me of my love for the book of the Psalms. Um, it was really the Psalms that was one of the first kind of big sections of Scripture that captured my heart and captured my imagination and made me want to do what I do, um, which is spend most of my time reading the Bible and studying it and then seeking to, to think through how I can communicate that to other people. Um, Jessica and I both shared a Hebrew professor who uh, would meet with us day after day um, for years and walk through Hebrew poetry with us. And it was really during those class periods um, where I'd walk away every single day in tears and kind of amazed and kind of mesmerized by the beauty of the God who's revealed through the Psalter, through the book of Psalms that has been given to us, um, that my heart was kind of captured. And so you'll forgive me and indulge me perhaps if we spend the next two weeks Looking at Psalms, uh, I, I was listening last week. I was like, "Oh man, we need to we need to hit the Psalter for just a bit." And so, um, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at a, a Psalm today and a Psalm next weekend, and then we'll hit a new sermon series on September 16th um, on virtue and on how perhaps you and I should walk the path of becoming more and more like Christ, being transformed in our character. Um, and so, until we get then get there, we'll, we'll take a break from Acts. Um, and then hopefully when we come back in Acts, we'll have a little bit of energy and steam ahead of us um, to hit up Acts. But today, uh, I would like to walk you through Psalm chapter 19. Uh, it's actually six years ago to the weekend um, when I preached my very first sermon. Um, it was here at FCQ, uh, September 3rd, 2006. I had been in college for one week. Exactly. It was our first weekend. My first weekend as a college student. And the pastor here had invited me to, to preach. I remember what it was on. We were facing that way. Um, back at that point, there was a wall up over here in closets um, on the side over here. And, and I preached on Colossians 1 on the, the supremacy of Christ. It wasn't a great sermon. Uh, it was recorded and then somehow it got deleted. Uh, it's, it's funny how that happens. Uh, and so as I, I, I was thinking back through on just kind of the journey that, that I've been on. Uh, and then on again last week, just, just being invited back into the life and the heart of the Psalms. Um, that I thought we'd camp out for a couple weeks. And so we'll start um, this morning in Psalm 19, um, which has been called maybe the heart of the Bible, the heart of the Psalter for sure. Um, we have in the, the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, God's iPod playlist. Okay, if you remember the metaphor uh, used by Jessica last week. And so on your iTunes, if you were to open it up, there's a top 25 playlist. These are the songs that kind of make you who you are, okay? For whatever reason, you listen to these things over and over and over and over again. You know the words, you know the melody, you know the notes, and it kind of echoes around inside of your head and kind of comes who you are. Well, this is God's top 150, okay? And his people's top 150. These are the songs that, that the people of God sing and listen to and study over and over and over and over again and that echo around in our mind. And perhaps some have suggested Psalm 19 stands at the heart of this playlist, stands as the centerpiece. It was C.S. Lewis, uh, who was a literary critic by trade, that, that's what he did, um, who said that he thought Psalm 19 might be the greatest poem in the Psalter. In fact, he said it might be one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It's very pregnant with information and with beauty and with God himself. Um, and so my hope this morning is, is perhaps to walk you through Psalm 19 and for us to enjoy God a little bit more um, through this song. 
So we'll read. Let's read together. Psalm 19. We'll pick it up in verse 1 and then read through. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drink drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, in this psalm, Psalm 19, you have a symphony of sorts, okay? Remember, this is a song. You have three big movements, and they appear at first sight to not be connected at all, okay? In verse 1 through 6, you have the first movement. And then in verse 7 through 11, it kind of steps up. The rhetoric is heightened. The language is heightened, okay? The song is kind of building and building and building. And then with 12 through 14, you hit the climax. You hit the very epic moment of this song, okay, with this third movement. So we'll work our way through these three movements and follow along with the rhythms of the psalm. So he starts out, the heavens declare the glory, the kavod, the weight, the beauty, the power, the essence, the nature, the character of who God is. All of creation is declaring, it's speaking, it's telling you a message, and the message is about God, who he is, his power, his wisdom, his character, his nature. The sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. Day to day, they're pouring out speech. It's, it's flowing up out of them. They can't contain it. Speech is coming out day by day by day by day. And night by night, knowledge is overflowing onto you and I from creation. The idea here is that creation, everything that exists, that God has created, is God's classroom. And that 24-7, 365, okay, all the time, at every second of existence, that's what it means by day to day, night by night. This is a Hebrew way of saying every time, all the time. Anytime you can think of, it's happening right now. Creation is speaking a message. A message about who God is, about how beautiful, about how wise, how powerful He is. Right now, as I'm speaking, as you're listening, right now, as we just finished playing music, to, later today as you're eating lunch and then taking a nap and then doing what you need to do this evening before Monday hits outside of you, around you, there's a message according to the psalm. There's a speech being prepared and delivered to you, to those who would have ears to pay attention. Uh, about a month ago, I went with Jake and a couple uh, of friends, and we went to um, go backpacking for a couple of days. And it's the first time I've ever kind of been backpacking, put a just backpack on and throw everything you need to live for a couple of days in the backpack and just kind of go and live. Um, and it was, it was a very, very fun time, and it's hard. I think it's hard to, to go into kind of the more beautiful parts of God's creation without encountering this. 
without encountering the sense of when you're standing out above a cliff looking out over this very scenic landscape, without encountering the sense of God's beauty and his power. And, and, and in a hard-to-describe kind of way, when you're looking, just observing this visual beauty and overwhelmingness, there's a sense of you that, that almost kind of understands more who God is. The same way that the things that you create, the things that you pour your time into, in a sense, explain you. If someone really took the time to get to know it, to look at it, to observe it, to study it, they might, in fact, get to know you a little bit better, to know your heart, to know your character, to know your desires. And it's hard to, to look up at the sky when you're outside of the city and see stars and not have the sense that the God is so big and powerful, but yet still have this, this fleeting sense that he's close by. You see, um, in verse number two here, verse two, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. This Hebrew word for knowledge perhaps is not just um, bare literal facts about God. Okay, it's, it's not just flashcard facts about who God is. Perhaps a better word would be wisdom. Day-to-day, night-to-night pours out wisdom. And, and God's wisdom is, is having to do with how the world was set up to run, with why he set it up, how he set it up, and how you and I play our part in that creation. Wisdom is um, just skill in the art of living. Okay, It's being able to be good at this thing God has given to us, at this arena God's thrown us into. And there's this sense, I think, when you look at creation, that you start to understand the picture of God's world and our role in it. I don't know if you've, uh, so when I watch the Discovery Channel, okay, and as long as it's not a program on like death or prey, okay, hunting, that kind of stuff, circle of life, kuna matata, as long as it's, as long as it's not something like that, usually what I come away with, seeing nature in a way I don't normally see it, is the sense of the playfulness of creation. The sense of almost creation itself is a, is a big playground with lots of things to enjoy and explore and experience. I mean, have you ever seen sea otters just living, right, or penguins or dolphins just observing creation around us? It, it seems like there's this, this kind of playground. There's this playfulness. There's this beauty. There's this lightness to creation. There's this giftedness. And then normally what you and I focus on and what we kind of put our attention on when it comes to creation around us are the bad things, okay? Um, the things that have been introduced by sin and by the fall, that's usually what grabs our attention. We miss out on kind of actual Genesis 1 creation. And so we pay attention to sickness and disease. We pay attention to hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. And perhaps we miss out on so many of the things about life which are so spectacular, which if I were creating, I'm not sure I'd be generous enough or creative enough or have the imagination to come up with. Think about this. Think about food and taste. Think about the God who invented taste buds. We need nutrition. Life needs to sustain itself. Creation gives us life, okay? And God, as he's thinking up this process, as he's thinking up the wisdom of how life will operate, you and I will eat and we'll be sustained with life. He says, not only will I provide for them food, I'm going to make something called taste. And they're going to bite into it and enjoy. Not only will I sustain their life, but they'll enjoy it. It will inherently be something they take pleasure in. Or think through sex. Life needs to procreate, needs to reproduce. But it's not just some dry biological mechanism, okay? I mean, this is God's idea, sitting down 
before time begins and saying, I'm going to make sex one of the most pleasurable things that they'll ever experience in their life. They're going to have a hard time coming up with drugs and chemicals that's going to match what they experience. And they enjoy my gift of sex. Creation, just the way it's set up, has this sense, if you pay attention to it, if you really listen, of giftedness, of goodness. And Christians would later on, after further revelation, understand creation as an overflow of the love of the triune God. So as Christians, we believe God is triune. There's Father, there's Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. There are three separate, distinct persons within the Godhead. And they've existed for all of eternity in this community, this perfect community. And, and the nature of the love that they share with each other, this perfect, reciprocal, glorifying love, is that it has to share. It has to overflow out onto other things. And so out of this abundance of love and perfection and peace and joy, not because they're lonely or not because there's strife or a war like all the other creation stories, out of this perfection, the triune God says, we need to share our love with more. And they create and they pour out their life, their love, their giftedness, their grace onto this creation. And they continually invite and, and draw in creation into their life, into their love, into their grace, into their perfect fellowship, community. And the psalm is saying, okay, everything around us is constantly giving us this kind of message. So that we should be able to look at the world around us and understand some key things. Like we are creatures and God is creator. But he's beautiful and powerful and to be worshipped and obeyed. But not just like a king that we fear, but he's gifted us with so many things. He's a good God. He seems to, at the core of his creation, want us to enjoy him and to know him. Day by day, night by night, 24-7, 365, this speech is pouring out. But the psalmist notes that there's a paradox. There's a conundrum. And there's no way out. As sometimes is the case with paradoxes and conundrums. If you look at verse 3, this speech, this knowledge, this declaration, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The paradox is this. Creation's message to you and I is inaudible. You don't hear it. It would be like I just stand here and pause. It's something you see and experience. It's nonverbal. I don't know if you've ever had experience with or taken care of or had a friend who was nonverbal, who, who doesn't communicate through language. It's an interesting thing. You'll note that communication is very possible. In fact, deep, intimate communication is possible. But you'll also note that it's, it's a hard-fought-for thing, that it can be tough, and that it can be easily ignored or misinterpreted. And as much as verbal communication can be interpreted, so nonverbal perhaps even more. And creation speech to us is nonverbal. It's not spoken or written, okay? It doesn't have grammar and syntax. It requires us to pay attention and to interpret and to listen. And that's going to be a problem, but here's the big conundrum. But even so, even with this inaudible message going out through the earth, it goes, it reaches. It goes, in fact, to the ends of the earth. And to, to prove this point, the psalmist points out the sun, okay? Perhaps the pinnacle of God's creation, and he gives us two metaphors for the sun. First one, it's like, verse 5, a bridegroom leaving his chamber. The idea here is a groom who's leaving his room and about to enjoy and know his wife like he's never enjoyed her or known her before. And he's happy. He's radiant. His face is shining and it's a color you've never seen before in a man's face. 
as he's about to be with his love. And just the sun, when it rises, is radiant, full of energy and excitement, much like a groom who's about to meet his bride. The second metaphor, it's like a, a strong man or a warrior who has a course to run and will run that course with no obstacle stopping him. And it'll go from the end of the earth to the end of the earth. It rises and it goes to the end of the heavens. And this last line is going to be key, and we'll come back to it then the Psalm, verse 6, this last line here. There's nothing hidden from its heat. The sun stretches its power and might, its message, everywhere. There's not one corner or rock that you could hide under where you would escape from it. That's the sun's job, okay? The sun's job is to throw off heat. Now, it does give us some light, but its primary job is to throw off heat, and it does it well, Okay? There is nowhere right now that you can go to escape the effects of the sun. You can't do it. Even right now, the very inside of who you are is being affected by how much heat the sun is throwing off to provide you life, to tell you about creation and giftedness, to tell you about God's wisdom and beauty and love for you. Now, we might imagine that with the right AC system and a little bit of coin in our pocket to power it, we could create a 72-degree temperature atmosphere. But all it would take is one afternoon in the summer with no AC, and you're back to reading Psalm 19 and going, can't hide from it. It's everywhere. It's killer. It's everywhere. So it is with God's message through creation. It reaches the ends of the earth. There's nowhere you go to hide or to get away from it. If all we had were Psalm 1 through 6, We'll see there's going to be a swift transition into verse 7 to the second movement with no warning or rhyme or reason that's apparent, at least on the surface. We might think this is all we need. We need no words. We need no further revelation. It's everywhere. It's powerful. It's communicating to us. The only thing we need is to be able to pay attention. But in verse 7 through verse 11, we'll meet the second movement of the psalm. And without warning or preparation or transition, the psalmist, in a sense, takes it to the next level. And he says, but... There's more revelation out there, and it's better and greater and more beautiful. And with everything in the psalmist, every word choice, every structural choice he makes, he heightens the rhetoric and draws you to this intimate, powerful, even more beautiful revelation that's given to us. So creation is speaking. No warning, verse 7. The law, the Torah, the Torah of Yahweh, of the Lord, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. You'll notice from verse 7 to 10, you have, 7 to 9, excuse me, you have six parallel statements, okay? Six rhythmic statements. If you'll remember when I was reading through it, I, I try to read through it with some rhythm. Read through it together. He said, rattled off one after the other, after the other, after the other, with synonyms, all kind of trying to get you a comprehensive picture of a new type of God's revelation. And with, with, again, every tool that he has in his toolbox as an artist, he paints for you how intimate and beautiful and even more special this revelation is. The first thing we might notice is that in these six parallel statements, you'll find the word LORD in all caps. Do you see that there? Six times, over and over and over and over and over again. In all caps, LORD, in your English Bibles, one day you might want to flip to the beginning of your Bible, read the note the translators gave you there. This is their way of signifying to you that what you have in front of you is God's personal name, Yahweh, which you might recognize in English as Y-H-W-H, in all caps. This is God's self-revealed name to his people. There are lots of things that our Bibles do that I don't agree with. One of them would be put it in Lord, all caps, okay? I think it's a travesty. 
millions of people read their Bibles and never understand what's happening with this word here. Um, I was actually reading this week an author who was saying the biggest mistake he thinks anyone's ever made with the Bible is chapters and verses. He, he was writing, he goes, it's a colossal mistake, period. And then he writes again, colossal, italicized, period. And at first I, I was annotating and I wrote beside it, hmm. And then I was thinking through it, I was like, well, I see his point. It helps us find things, but what it's done is it's taught us to read the Bible like snippets of promises or blessings. And not as a story, not as a book, not as a letter, not as a song. Imagine taking your favorite novel and typing each sentence one at a time, putting on a different line and putting a number before it. And then trying to read it and enjoy it the same way. You would not. But there was a man who put chapters and verses in our New Testament, and English publishers have not thought about it since. We also, following Jewish tradition, which I think is misled, have tried to steer people away from thinking about and understanding God's personal name. Now, I've been in the sermons, and I've seen the books on the bookshelf, um, the names of God, okay? I would humbly suggest to you, God himself has spoken on this issue. There is one name. God has one name, self-revealed, Exodus chapter 3, confirmed over and over again in Exodus. God comes to his people and says, my name is Yahweh. Now, he has titles, lots of them, which is usually what's enumerated in these the Names of God sermon series or the Names of God books. But a title is very different from a name. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm whatever kind of title you put handsome in, okay? <laughs> but my name is, is Mike Skinner. And those things are different. Now I might, so, so God has a name, right? But he might be provider and he might be shepherd and he might be the one who sees all. But none of those things are his name. None of those things is his personal name, what he goes by. But God comes to the Israelites in a context of promise, a context of relationship, and says, let me tell you what to call me. I'm Yahweh. And you see the psalmist put this in six times over and over and over and over again. And this should be a flag to you that whatever's happening here is very intimate, very personal, very powerful. This is God himself coming as close as he can come to humanity. And if you compare it to the first movement, Psalm 19, you'll find one occurrence of the word God. No lords, all caps. Not even more than one occurrence of the word God. This Hebrew word for the word God here, El, Elohim. It's the generic word for God. It's the, the generic, vague deity. Okay? It's really our word, God, that everyone can agree upon. Okay? We stole this word. The Hebrews stole this word from the Canaanites. This was their chief God. This was their Zeus. In an effort to perhaps communicate with them, we adopted it as our own title, one of the titles for God. This is deity, generic, bland, vanilla deity. In creation, gives us God. Torah it says Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Reveals who God is, his personal presence to us. So the law of Yahweh, okay? Torah is this word in, in verse 7. I think it's been badly translated for you with the word law. I think when we think of the word law, we're largely misled um, when we're looking back at the scriptures. First of all, in the ancient world, they don't think of law, a legal system, the way you and I do in Western modern nation states. Secondly, the word itself perhaps doesn't mean that, just in, in general. Um, perhaps a better translation, one I would suggest for you is instruction or guidance or teaching. And there's a, a big 
difference in the connotation and the use between the two words. We might, though, by this time in the Psalms, think of Torah being used as God's personal word, his spoken word, his written word. The words of God, his personal revelation, a verbal revelation that began to be used, Torah, to refer to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah of Moses, by this time is perhaps referring to all of the scriptures, God's personal revelation. In fact, we know the Jewish people use Torah to refer not just to the scriptures, but also the things spoken about the scriptures, the oral law. There was more than just what was written down. And in fact, by the time of Jesus, they spoke of the Torah almost as if it was an independent person. And we'll, we'll talk about this and think about this in a moment. Perhaps who we meet in Jesus is the Torah, the word of God, the revelation of God, the very being of God. The Torah, you see the six synonyms in these parallel statements, the law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, rules, trying to get you a comprehensive nature of God's word, his personal verbal revelation to humanity. And then you see these predications. These aren't adjectives. These are predications. There's more force there. Torah of Yahweh is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. Perhaps, though, what's most spectacular for the psalmist about God's word to his people is what it does, the results that it throws. You see, God reveals his name and gives Torah and gives instruction and teaching and revelation to his people. There's a story being told here in Psalm 19. The story is creation and covenant. So God creates, and he tells a message, but the message isn't audible. And in fact, if we read Romans and just look at the world around us, we have ignored the message. We've silenced it, perhaps in a way where we'll never be able to hear it again without rebirth. Perhaps in a way in which this message is not available to us as it once was. We've silenced it. We've gone away. We've abandoned God. But he comes in history to a man named Abram and says, through you and your descendants, I am creating a people. In fact, I'm going to rescue this people and the world altogether through this people. Covenant, promise, a one way promised by God to create a people and to save them in the process of redeeming his entire world. And in this covenant, he gives Torah. He says, this is who I am. This is how you follow me. And he gives his name. and says, this is who I am. I'm in relationship with you. I'm your God. You are my people. And what that word does, spectacular to the psalmist, it revives the soul, verse 7. This is maybe the, the horror of what it does, okay? It recreates, it brings us back to life. It brings health and vitality in who we are, in the very essence of us, of the usness of us, the mikeness of Mike, in my soul. If you could bottle that up, you'd make some money, right? <laughs> the word revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It brings wisdom. It gives you skill in the art of living in God's creation. It rejoices the heart. It makes one glad. It makes one joyful in the depths of who they are. It enlightens the eyes. It brings truth and clarity. It endures forever. And it's righteous altogether. The word of God does to us. So the first movement you have a speech from creation or perhaps from God through creation to you and I but it's inaudible it's not heard we don't get it much like someone visiting a famous painting and walking away going I don't see what was all that great about it we look at creation and we just don't get it we just don't get the message 
But God does not leave us there. He comes and reveals himself as personally as humanly possible or divinely possible and gives us his Torah. Now, I follow a, a guy named Karl Barth. I think that the word of God is threefold and should be understood in kind of three tiers, okay? And the first one would be Jesus himself. Jesus, according to the scriptures, is the word of God. Again, predication, not adjective, not metaphor, not description. Jesus is the word of God. That's what the scriptures say. When we talk about the word of God, we're primarily talking about Jesus. Jesus is God's speech. He's God's logic. He's God's revelation. And he comes to us and we see and touch and feel and live with the word of God. Revealed to us as never before, John 1 says. Hebrews 1 says, in, in the past with our fathers and our prophets, we've gotten all these messages about who God was. And now he's visited us. His word has become flesh among us. Not too long ago, a, a famous rabbi and, and a recent pope were having a public debate about Jesus. And they were writing books back and forth to each other. And it was interesting because they both agreed on the premise of Matthew. But where they diverted ways was that the rabbi couldn't accept the premise, whereas the pope accepted it. The premise was this. The rabbi goes, I can't read Matthew without thinking like Jesus thinks he is the Torah. Not just that he's, he knows the Torah better than anybody else, or that he's adding to it or changing it, but that he like, is it. And this is the, what you get by he speaks with authority, right? It's not like Moses saying, God told me this Torah to give to you. And it's not like the rabbis who expound upon the Torah and say, let me interpret it for you. Let me explain it to you. It's like, here I am. Here in the flesh, in front of you. And he says, I can't, I can't go there. I can't buy that. I'm, I'm out. I step out of bounds at that moment and remain a faithful Jew. And the Pope goes, agreed. I follow your logic completely. I think you're reading the scriptures pretty well. But I'm in. I think the Torah has visited us. I think God's word has come close to us and has enacted a plan to revive the soul, to enlighten our eyes, to bring us life and truth and health. And this is the most intimate and powerful form of communication God has to us. He comes to bring us into relationship with himself. So the first movement, creation speaking, it's inaudible. The second movement, God is verbally speaking to us. And then again, with no warning and no transition and no apparent rhyme or reason, the tone changes dramatically. The author changes, and we perhaps in our section that we wouldn't have guessed having the first two in front of us. And in verse 12, we see him say, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. He, he looks at the Torah and God's revelation through his instruction and, and written word and spoken word and Jesus' word. So back to, to Bart. I totally skipped over that, okay? Bart says the God, or Jesus himself is the word of God. And then the scriptures, the written revelation of God, is a second tier word of God. About the real word of God. So sometimes in the evangelical life, we have started to worship the Bible. And we say things like, this is the word of God. And Bart might say, well, let's calm down with that language, okay? The word of God is Jesus, and this testifies about him, but it's paper and words and grammar and syntax. There's an actual living word of God that this testifies about. And then there's even a third tier of the word of God. You have Jesus, you have the scriptures, and then you have sermons or prophetic, vocalized words of God, okay? People speaking often from the scriptures, from the written word of God, about the actual living word of God. And as the psalmist says here in verse 10 and 11, this instruction, this revelation, this personal word from God, it's better than honey, and it's better than money, and it's better than anything we could want. More desirable than gold and fine gold. 
And at times of sanity and clarity, I think, in our lives, we might come to that conclusion as well. That more than anything, we could chase after, acquire, or play with. The fact that God has spoken to us personally is perhaps the best thing that could have ever happened to us. It's perhaps the only thing that matters in the end. And again, change in tone, change in subject. Now you have a human being speaking to God about himself. Odd. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults, from things I don't even see. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Exclamation mark. Free me from these things. And then I'd be blameless, and then I'd be innocent of great transgression. You and I think of sin often in terms of law and law-breaking or law-keeping. I think that is perhaps not the help, most helpful way to think of sin, and to think of God. I think since the 16th, 17th centuries, we've thought of God primarily as the big lawgiver, okay? God creates laws, you either keep them or break them, and your relationship with him is pretty conditional, contingent on how good of a keeper you are or a breaker you are. If you're a breaker, he's decided a way out, there's a judicial loophole, okay? And he can get you in on the law-keeping side if you really want it, if you accept his invitation. Perhaps, though, we should go further back to the ancient church and perhaps maybe closer to the metaphors and the imagery of the scripture and think of God as a father or a shepherd, as the triune creator who has this, this dance of life he's inviting us into. And, and honestly, if you read the scriptures, your obedience is not too contingent on his relationship to you. He's always had a one-way love, desire toward you, bringing you, drawing you, calling you into life. And now that's able to be resisted, it's able to be fought against, perhaps eternally fought against. But God's heart never changes towards you. He's created and he wants life. He wants to see life. He desires that all men be saved, the scriptures say. Perhaps we can think of sin, not as law-breaking, but with this image. Imagine, for a second, a rebellious teenager. I was one of these. Okay. When I was in high school, through a series of events in my life and, and things that got into my head somehow, I began to deeply mistrust my parents and to deeply mistrust the decisions they had made and the way they had treated me and began to, in a sense, blame them for everything that was wrong with all of creation. And as we talk about it years later, all parties acknowledged that we almost got to the point where there would be no relationship anymore. By God's grace, we didn't get there. Today, I have a great relationship with my parents. I can look back and acknowledge how good they were to me, how, how they did the best they could. They loved me, they guided me, protected me. But imagine a rebellious teenager who, for whatever reason, has developed this deep mistrust, hatred, in fact, of his parents, and wants nothing to do with them, and shifts all blame on things that have gone wrong in their world on the parents, and at every point scorns them, and abandons them and betrays them. And then imagine the parents who spent 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 years pouring everything that they have into this child. In a sense, creating the child. Deciding, probably, to have a child. Bringing that child into life. Investing money, I'm told lots of it, into bringing this child life investing lots of time, rearranging, in fact, their entire lives around this new life that they've brought into the world. And over years and years of thankless service, they pour out love and encouragement and prayer and time and money and resources 
And they do their best, again, to give wisdom and to guide into life and say, let me tell you how this works. Let me tell you how you can find joy and live life to the brim here in God's creation. And imagine the look on their faces when their child gets to be 17 or 18 years old and says, I hate you. Get away from me. And they continue to reach out and continue to be slapped away. And continue to be reached out and continue to be slapped away. They're betrayed. They're abandoned. The gift of life that was given and wants to be continue, and they, that they want to continue to give is denied. It's turned away from. Perhaps that picture is a better metaphor, at least in this passage, for what sin is. For how God views sin and how maybe perhaps the psalmist is viewing it now. Not a simple, bare, literal rule-breaking, but as an observation that creation itself was this playground, this gift given to you and I. So we said, no, thank you. And then he comes and reveals himself to us, and we again say, no, thank you. And it's a spurned lover or hated parent. And the psalmist looks inside of himself and goes, oh, no. What have I done? How can I mend this relationship? How deep is it inside of me? I don't even notice it 100% of the time. There are these hidden faults in me. In moments, again, of, of clarity, I think some of us, all of us perhaps, if we're truthful, experience this. We develop praise and awe at creation. Then we see God's word come down among us as revelation to us. And we are further called to worship and celebrate. And then we turn from that and look at ourselves and go, oh no. And I think for some of us who, who have even been following Jesus for a long time, we still look inside. And if others could see kind of the mess that was still inside of us, you might have lots of questions. Like, you're still dealing with that. That's still, that's still having mastery over you? And you might see some things that you're like, okay, I can see progress there. And other things, you might ask, how has it been 10 years and you haven't even started dealing with that? And the human looks inside of himself, looks at his heart, and goes, I can't even, make, I can't even understand all the mess that's here. I can't even make sense of it all. And I need you to declare me innocent. I need you to free me, he says, with a grit in his voice that comes out in the psalm in English with an exclamation point. Declare me innocent. Free me. Let these sins not have dominion over me. And then he gives us a prayer. Verse 14, as we wrap up the psalm. A prayer that stood the test of time, even in English. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Now this first phrase, your words of my mouth, I think connects this whole poem together. First, I want you to remember verse 6, okay? The sun reaches everything. And it's part of this general vanilla revelation of God. And if the sun reaches everywhere, do you think the Torah reaches everywhere and more? Yes. To the depths of a human heart. And a human being responds with what? Speech. Watch what's happened here. Creation speaking. No words. Inaudible. God starts to speak personally to humanity. And now with the psalmist's prayer, the psalmist speaks back. And we have conversation. We have relationship. We have the psalmist start to take his rightful place in creation. Knowing and being known by and enjoying the God who created him. He speaks. And he says, let the words of my mouth, let the things I say, let the meditations of my heart, let the things I think, let all of me 
be acceptable, fit in to what you've created, to the gift that you've given us, to the plan and desire you have for your creation, created beautifully and redeemed even more beautifully. And he ends with this acknowledgement of Yahweh, my rock, my redeemer. And there's all the emotion in the world in those pronouns. My rock, who keeps me safe, my refuge, my stronghold, who protects me. My redeemer, the one who saw me fall, who saw me spurn his love and his gift, and who continues to see me do it over and over and over again, and says, you are mine. I will buy you back. I will not let go of you. The one who has now experienced and taken his place in covenantal love, in a love that reveals itself in, a, in this unconditionalness, in this one-sidedness. When we call God righteous, and when you see the righteousness of God revealed in the, the book of Romans, what you're seeing here is a double faithfulness to covenant. It's a covenant term, righteousness. And so the idea is this. God enters into covenant with humans. And God says, I will save you, and then you need to follow me, okay? Now, one person keeps their covenant. One person breaks their covenant. We break our covenant. God keeps his. In this sense, God is righteous. He's right. He's done what he said he would do. I'll protect you, be your God, and then you have certain duties as well. But what's amazing about God's righteousness is it's a double righteousness. Once our side of the covenant is broken, God goes, I don't care. You're staying in covenant with me. You're mine. And even if that means I have to fulfill your side of the covenant, we'll do it. This covenant is not being broken. And that's since he's doubly righteous. He keeps what he's created. And in your life and in my life, he comes and he saves and redeems and reveals himself to us. And then as we continue to fall away and as we continue to at times resist him and walk off the path, he continues to hold us with his covenantal love and says, I've, I've redeemed you and I will redeem you. I am your God. You are my people. And the psalmist, in a moment of clarity, says, O Yahweh, my rock, my redeemer. I'd invite you this morning, as we look through Psalm 19, to, to feel the, the words of George Herbert, who said, Prayer is God's breath in man returning back to its birth. God creates. When we take our rightful place, we use our creative power, our speech, our love, to respond to him, to return in relationship to him. I would invite you to, to consider the message of creation, to consider the message of God's word, and to find your rightful place there. I'd also invite you to notice that there are three agents now at work, according to the psalmist, testifying about who God is. And I think you and I have a place in one of those three categories. First, you have creation speaking a message. Inaudible, we know. Most people don't get it. We just don't understand it. It's not there for us. Then you have the word of God. Jesus, scriptures, spoken word. Unfortunately, many don't get that as well. There are lots who are living in, in no telling what kind of hell on earth right now because they just don't get it. They've abandoned it. But there's a third voice now echoing in creation talking about how good and beautiful and holy and righteous God is. Redeemed humans. What we might call mission or evangelism. Now that the people around us no longer have to rely on just creation's message or just the word's message, they now also have a third voice pointing the way to them. 
saying this is the one who's created and who's redeemed. May we join our place in that third role, giving testimony and witness to God, and find ourselves like the psalmist praying, with the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in his sight. O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your name, your great name. We thank you for revealing it to us in personal relationship covenant with us. We thank you that at the sound of your great name, sickness flees, death runs away, the enemy has to leave. Because you come to save and to seek the lost. You've come to redeem a people. You've come to reveal yourself. And today, Father, we, we thank you for doing that. We acknowledge that you have done that. We take our place in the chorus of creation, giving you praise. And we ask that you would, over and over and over again, draw near to us, speak to us, show up at the doorposts of our mouths and our hearts, and give us a message, give us a sign, keep us in relationship with you. As in your son's perfect and powerful name that we pray. Amen.